So first, Romans 4, verse 11. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. These are the words of God. And he, speaking of Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. May God bless that reading of his word and turn over to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 17. Once again, giving your attention to the reading of the perfect word of God. The cup of blessing which we bless Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Amen. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we come now to see you reveal to us gospel mysteries by way of the doctrine of the sacraments. Father, this is a doctrine that uh, defies any human understanding on one level, for these are spiritual things that must be discerned spiritually, and they are spiritual things that must be preached spiritually as well. And so the man who preaches, Father, confesses, as always, his insufficiency for these things. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit, the spirit that makes these sacraments effectual means of grace, and the spirit that makes the word of God come alive to our souls, that that same spirit would be operative in the preaching of the word, that the man behind the pulpit would decrease, so that Jesus Christ would increase among our sight and sense. Lord, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of the word, and we would pray then, Father, that you would help us behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world as he is preached out of the word of God. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, it has been two months since we have been in our series on gospel worship. This is actually our ninth sermon in that series. So I'd like to review where the foundations of worship uh, were, were discovered as we begin this sermon that is so far removed from those early sermons. We begin with a very simple place to remember as in the 97th Psalm that God is holy. God is holy. And so all that we do in worship must be done in view of his holiness as we draw near to him. Do you remember what the Lord said concerning his own worship? I will be sanctified, that is hallowed, in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Leviticus 10, verse 2, or 3. And what did he say that in view of? Those two charred bodies of Nadab and Abihu, the two priests, the two sons of Aaron, who violated his holiness in worship when they offered God strange fire, which he commanded them not. Leviticus 10, verse 1. And so from that underlying principle of the holiness of God, we considered what is called the regulative principle of worship, which is summarized in this way. We must only do what God has commanded in worship. All else is forbidden to us. We must not remove from nor add to divine worship. Both are sinful. That principle is expressed in Deuteronomy 12, 32, speaking of worship, what thing soever I command you, observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Do you remember why God expresses this principle in that way? Because man is exceedingly sinful. If the Bible prohibited everything sinful man could come up with in worship, Think of some of the things that we see today. Sock puppets, plays, dancing, and so on. This Bible would be infinitely large because as one of our forefathers in the faith has said, 
Man's heart is as a forge of idols. Instead, God's principle is very efficient. He says, do only what I ask and do nothing else. And that principle also gives you such great confidence, child of God, that if your worship derives from the word of God, he accepts it and is pleased by it if it is offered in Jesus Christ. But then we remember another principle of worship, don't we? That our worship is our service to God. It's not about our gratification. It's not about our own comfort even in worship. Instead, if anything, friends, if anything at all must be entirely and totally to the glory of God, it would be his worship. And how often God's people miss that. Doing things solely because it makes them feel good. As though man is the audience for worship and not God. Neither, friends, we remember as Reformed people, as Presbyterians, neither is worship foremost, I use that word carefully, foremost about our being fed by the means of grace. In our pursuit of the means, we can forget that in worship we are here to serve God, whether he feeds us or not. But we praise the Lord that he is gracious and that he showers gifts to us in worship. But just like so many... We are guilty of seeking the gifts rather than the giver. That he is the one who is to be blessed in worship and served. So having seen all of that up to now as review, today we come to the sacraments. Our boys and girls know that there are two in their catechism, the Lord's Supper and baptism, of course. These are tokens from God that man often greatly perverts. The one great Uh, just astonishment to me, but also grief to me, is that if there's any part of divine worship that is corrupted, it is the sacraments. They're often used in a superstitious manner. I'm going to come back to that word superstition. It's a good word, friends. We must reclaim that word. It is not about urban legends and uh, wives' tales. The word signifies something historically. And even if you open up Webster's 1828 dictionary, the word signifies doing a thing not required by God and thinking he blesses it. Now, not being Roman Catholics, we see an obvious one, right? The sign of the cross. I'm not even going to do it. But they believe that there is something about crossing yourself that God finds a blessing in. But that's superstition, friends. That's superstition, doing anything out of tradition and without divine warrant, thinking that God is going to bless it. Sadly, the sacraments are often full of superstition. Perhaps no other aspect of the divine worship of God is so grossly polluted from the corruption of the Lord's Supper and the blasphemous mass that says it sacrifices Jesus Christ Or on the other hand, the view that sees the sacraments as inconsequential or a bare memorial with no presence from Jesus Christ, though God teaches us otherwise, you even read it in 1 Corinthians 10, to the corruption of baptism, which is superstitiously seen as a literal washing away of original sin by the Roman Catholic Church. Or on the other hand, simply our pledge to follow Christ as many see it today without seeing what it is, which is a covenant sign and seal from God, where he, he first pledges to us that he will wash his people away from their sins, that his word and spirit will work in the sacrament to his holy aim. That comes first and prior to our pledging to follow God. And the elements, oh, how grossly they're corrupted as well. You... You wish I was joking about this, but people use Doritos and soda pop to celebrate communion, so-called. Baptisms needing to be done in a spectacular fashion with theatrics and gimmicks. Men have even drowned in seeking a great experience in their baptisms. Instead of simply looking by faith to the promise of God and the word of institution. As blessing it. Strange fire, in other words, is all throughout the visible church when it comes to the sacraments. 
And so today our theme is to erase the veil of ignorance and superstition concerning them. I'll preach this doctrinal sermon so that the sacraments might be administered here correctly and you, his people, might gain a full and true blessing out of their observance. And we'll divide our time into the three headings on your bulletin that concern these sacraments, which is first to see them as signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Second is to understand the outward sign and its relation to inward grace. And third is to see them as great condescending aids for our weak faith that we must use. So first, they are signs and seals of the covenant. Now, I suppose we must understand what the word sacrament means before we go any further. In Protestantism, outside of the Reformed churches, that word has fallen out of favor. You might hear them called ordinances instead. Because I think many think the word sacrament sounds Roman Catholic. And they also say, we dealt with this a bit in our new members class, that we don't find the word in my Bible, and maybe we should not use it. Yet, I'll remind you, as I reminded the class, that the word Trinity is not in the Bible either. And so we don't do uh, theology that way. Christians, as we explained in the class, are not biblicists. Uh, A wooden, direct reading of the Bible without synthesizing the truths in it by good and necessary consequence. Sometimes we must summarize a doctrine found in the Word. But I will remind you, though, that the Word is in the Bible but it's gained out of the Latin translation and not out of Greek or Hebrew. The word in Latin is sacramentum. And the origin of the word is from the oath Roman soldiers took to their government. And yes, covenant keeping, we'll see, is part part of the idea of a sacrament. But as I mentioned in the baptism sermon, we don't do theology by lexicon. So let us consider why the church used the word and the word should be used. Well, the Latin Bible translated the Greek word mysterion to sacramentum. For instance, in 1 Timothy 3.16, we read, And without controversy great is the mystery of godliness. I looked that verse up in my Latin Bible this past week, and the word mystery is sacramentum, which is where this word comes from. And you must remember that the church used Latin for her theology well into the Reformation and beyond. It is the lingua franca for theology and other serious subjects. Why, in this, own, in this nation, not too long ago, students had to learn Latin, even in grade school. But anyway, since it is a theological word, the word endured in Reformation churches. For we find, and this is key, that the sacraments reveal to us the mysteries of God in a tangible way. And that's why the word is used. In fact, it's, it's very interesting that as they are revelatory, they actually oppose the Gnostic view, which say that there is hidden knowledge to be discovered. But when our Bible speaks of mysteries, it speaks of them primarily as being revealed. We saw in our reading this afternoon in 1 Corinthians 4, again, just by the providence of God, that the aim of the gospel ministry is this, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You know, the glory of the gospel ministry, friends, is this, that mysteries formerly hidden to us are now revealed through the ministry of the church. And the sacraments are part of that revelation and ministers are stewards of them. I and other ministers, in other words, are responsible before God to reveal Jesus Christ to you by them. And in the gospel, the mysteries of God are not concealed but revealed. Yes, the word here, this word is the primary revelation, isn't it, of how sinful man can be reconciled to the holy God. But yet, sacraments come alongside the word and reveal to us with tangible signs. They illustrate the word in a way that your sight can sense and grasp. Think of it. I hope you never lose sight of these great mysteries, the mystery of how our sins are washed away. It's shown and revealed in baptism's waters. The mystery of how sin is not just washed away, 
but atoned for and paid for, is shown and revealed in that broken bread and shed blood in the Lord's Supper to show me with my sight that Jesus Christ died in my place. The sacrament reveals the mystery signified by the word of God in this verse. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The Lord's Supper shows you that mystery of godliness in a way that your senses grasp so that even the most unlearned Christian can grasp the gospel made visible. And the sacraments point to that greatest mystery of all, which is our union with Jesus Christ. Think of this. Think of the word mystery and then connect it to the word sacramentum. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery or sacramentum, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Friends, it is still mysterious to me how I am united to Jesus Christ. Mysterious, but it is the operation of the Spirit and it is revealed in the Word of God. So there's still a mysterious aspect to our faith, don't get me wrong, but in baptism and the Lord's Supper, we see our union with Jesus Christ in a tangible way, God with us and God for us. And we find that the sacraments show and preach this great mystery that Christ is one with his church. Flesh, think of it, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones as I watch the bread torn so that I can be one with him. And so sacraments reveal mysteries to our sight, and we'll return that uh, to that later. But now I also want you to see they're not divorced from God's covenant. They are part of the covenant of grace. We call them covenant signs and seals because he has attached them and affixed them to the covenant. First thing you have to understand is they find their origin in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament. Um, The two Uh, sacraments of the New Testament have their analog in the Old, circumcision and Passover, the two great Old Testament sacraments. And they functioned, you need to realize this, just as our New Testament sacraments do, they both pointed to Jesus. Circumcision to point us to the male child who would come and be cut off for our sins with his blood shed for us, a bloody seed of Abraham who would save us, and pass over a sign of the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sin of the world, because we read in 1 Corinthians 5, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. They're replaced today as our Savior replaced them with baptism and the Lord's Supper. But still, they signify what the other two once did. Baptism is equated to circumcision. We've already heard that, so I'm not going to continue down that again. It's our initiation into the people of God and the covenant of grace. The Lord's Supper and Passover are site of our Messiah's sacrificial salvation. Both are covenant tokens given to God's covenant people. And what's the easiest way to summarize the covenant? God saying, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. And so these sacraments are tokens of that gracious covenant through which God saves sinners. Think about the end of the covenant, friend. Why is the covenant made that we will be his people and he will be our God? That's why God saves sinners. See, you are not saved in the abstract. Like, okay, well, I will be saved and I will not go to hell. It is more than that, friends. You are saved that you might be united to Jesus Christ forever and that he may be your God and you might be his people. And that's where I want you to remember how Abraham's um, faith was accounted to him for righteousness. This is that same covenant, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it for him, uh, to him for righteousness. Is that not the covenant of grace, friends? It is. And that's why That's why when we read in Romans 4, verse 11, our scripture, first scripture, his circumcision was said to be what? A sign and a seal of Abraham's righteousness. And that is meant to remind you of Genesis 17, 11, where God told Abraham's family this, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and listen to this carefully, 
and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And notice he used the plural there, ye and you. It was not just to Abraham, it was not thou, but to all of God's people. It is a token of the covenant between me and you, plural. The sign of circumcision was a token of the covenant between God and his people. And that is the same in the New Testament sacraments as well. The reason I'm belaboring this point is that we understand from Romans 4.11 how to treat New Testament sacraments. In the Lord's Supper, what do you hear of the Lord's Supper when Jesus Christ institutes it? This cup is the New Testament in my blood. It is a sign of the covenant of grace. It points you to the covenant Then in Colossians 2, circumcision and baptism are equated. Baptism then also is a covenant sign. And what about baptism? The covenant name of God is applied to those who receive it, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, a token of the covenant. And so it is then only for those who are part of the covenant community. Those who have bound themselves to be God's people to be Christ's people. And so there's a difference here between the word of God and the sacraments. The word is what we call a converting ordinance as well as a sanctifying one. The word of God converts a man and it will bring a man into the covenant. But the sacraments are not for conversion. The sacraments instead are for our sanctification and marking ourselves out as the people of God for us only. You know, one of the the lovely things about the Lord's table last week was when God's people took their place at it, it showed that the sacrament was for them alone, right? There's a visible difference here in the sacrament between those who are pledged to be gods, those that God has saved, and those out there. We might have had a bunch of unbelievers come in here. Maybe you would have brought them in from outside, and they had come to hear the word. They would hear the word, they would receive the word, and we pray that faith would have come by the hearing of that word. But when it came to the table, it was only for God's people who have pledged to be the Lord's. And whenever we we see the sacraments, it's a token of the covenant betwixt God and us, there is something then, I think, that God's people intuit and feel in their souls, don't they? that when the sacraments are celebrated, they are especially cherished by us, aren't they? We celebrate their use particularly because we know in some way it is for us only. Whenever we see a new convert or a little child baptized, we say, that one is one of us, praise the Lord. And we say, that's God's blessing upon them. And when we come to the table of the Lord, we say, this is the inner chamber of Christ. No one's coming here but those who have the wedding garment. And by faith, I possess it, and that's my Lord's token to me. So the covenant uh, tokens are what we call the sacraments. Now, again, I just want to cover some of these bases here, and so please, I hope you stick with this. You also have to understand who institutes them. Is it the church? No. No. The church has no authority to institute sacraments. Now, this is also very interesting. Is it God who institutes them? Now, in a sense, yes, but that would not be precise enough. And we actually have to avoid that as the answer because it would lead you to certain errors from the Roman Catholic Church. The correct answer is Jesus Christ as mediator of the covenant and head of the church. Only Jesus Christ institutes the sacraments. The church does not. We have talked about this. We only have uh, ministerial authority. We cannot legislate. Uh, They're not instituted by God either, apart from the mediator, but it is instituted by the mediator of the covenant of grace. You see that. Baptism is instituted at the end of Matthew's gospel by Jesus Christ, saying, I, the mediator with all power in me, says... Go, therefore, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. Or in the Lord's Supper, he institutes it by saying, do this in remembrance of me. And the reason I say this is you must avoid certain errors that have crept up. Because the Roman Catholics, you know, invent sacraments at a whim. They call marriage a sacrament. It cannot be because marriage is for all people, not just for the church. 
Then solely on the church's authority, they add confession, confirmation, the last rites, and holy orders. But only Jesus Christ, as king and head of the church, can institute a sacrament. And that is why, whenever we observe them, I always read the words of institution. That you would know that these things are not rituals we have invented, but by Jesus Christ's precept, we are to do it until he returns. So with that, I want us to consider our second heading and the two parts of a sacrament that we understand, which are the outward sign as well as the inward grace. Now in Romans 4.11, we find something very important and vital to an understanding of the sacraments, that they function as both signs and seals. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, and it is also called here a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. So sacraments, they first function as signs. They point to something else, but they also serve as confirming seals. Let's start with their function as a sign. Uh, What's a sign, boys and girls? What's a sign? Um, Consider a sign for a restaurant, right, on the side of the road. Is it the restaurant? No. It points you to where the restaurant is. The restaurant, then, is the thing that the sign, we say, signifies, right? You see a sign for McDonald's or something on the side of the road. The sign is not McDonald's, but it tells you where McDonald's may be found. And so you see the sign as well as the thing signified. And I've always felt for our culture, perhaps the most helpful example I've found is the Hollywood sign. You know, most of you have seen it in the media, I I trust, those nine letters upon Mount Lee in Southern California. There's multiple layers here, I think, which are very helpful, which uh, point us to how the sacraments operate. Now, is the sign Hollywood itself? No, it's not Hollywood, right? It points you to the city of Hollywood. But what is helpful about that sign is it actually points you to something deeper. In fact, your mind probably, when I, I, I pointed out the Hollywood sign to you, did not even think about the city of Hollywood itself. It signifies something deeper than that. It signifies something deeper than geography. It signifies an entire industry in your mind, doesn't it? You might think when I said the Hollywood sign, you might have thought about red, the red carpet, about movies, television shows, actors and actresses, glamour, glitz, immorality, and whatever else, right? You saw that sign in your mind, and you thought about all kinds of other things which that thing signifies. The bare sign points you to something deeper. So in other words, when we say we're talking about the motion picture industry, we talk about Hollywood, right? Though motion pictures is even greater than that geographic area and is found throughout the world. In the same way, friends, the Lord uses sacraments as signs so that when you see a baptism, there is a connection your mind is to make that you see in the baptism the washing away of the filth of my sin by the Spirit of the Lord. 1 Peter 3.21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so my mind, when it sees the sign, remembers that there is a Savior whose blood was shed to wash me of my sin. And then in the Lord's Supper, when I look at the sign of my Lord's broken and bloodied body, and I think of him atoning for my sin in my place that I deserve to be broken and my blood deserve to be shed, but praise God that he has done it and my sins are atoned for. And you think about this, friends, all it took was a bit of water, wine, and bread for all of that to be signified to you in a powerful way. And so what you have to see, these signs as well, are are what we call sensible signs, right? Meaning there is a connection between the sign and the thing it signifies. Water in baptism showing us the washing, right? The washing away of our sin. Think about it. The Lord doesn't use incense for baptism because it would be an insensible sign. Uh, Incense is a picture of our prayers, right? And so baptism as a symbol of cleansing and washing is done with water. In the supper, the red wine signifies the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's why white wine should never be used. 
because it is meant to signify and be sensible. Nobody looks at white wine and thinks of blood. And that's why these signs must be sensible. Bread is torn. Common table bread is uh, torn. That signifies a body that is broken. These are sensible signs by which we can make out what is happening. So that's how sacraments function as signs. Well, what about them being called seals here in Romans 4.11? In this, they are as a wax seal that a king might affix to a document. Uh, The king saying, this carries my stamp of approval and this carries my own authority. It is the genuine article and I will back it up with the power of my office. And so the sacraments are God's pledge, friends, that what they signify are yours truly to have if you come to them by faith. I was looking at our our paper money um, this week as I was writing the sermon, and the back of my, or the front of my paper money says, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private, doesn't it? Without a debate on fiat money, right? The idea communicated there actually is quite helpful and relevant because with the pledge on a piece of paper comes the signature of the treasurer of the United States and it testifies that this thing is not just a piece of paper but it is backed by the force of the United States government and it is authentic. Otherwise, friends, and again, this would open up a debate on paper money, all you have is a piece of paper without a seal on it that says this is legitimate. In the same way, sacraments are seals from God. Otherwise, all you have is water, wine, and bread without understanding that they come with the seal of God. In other words, then, you don't have to doubt. You don't have to doubt, friends. What they signify are truly backed by him. That if you come to the supper with faith, that what it signifies is yours to have based on the authority of, of God saying, this is a seal of the covenant and it comes with my backing. You know, this is very important for our weak faith, friends, on a couple of levels. First of all, as we think of Abraham in Romans 4.11, I think of myself, I cannot see righteousness. I can't see my righteousness. I can't see righteousness. It's not something I can hold. It's not something I can touch. It is a spiritual thing. I know, yes, I have my faith in the Lord. But faith sees the sacrament and apprehends the promise that is found in it. And it is something I can hold, I can touch, and I can see. Remember faithful Abraham then in this way. He was given a sacrament of circumcision as a sign, it says, that he had the righteousness of faith. That sacrament testifies that, yes, what is unseen, righteousness, is yours if you have faith. And that faith, then, sees the sacrament as a visible picture of what is unseen, that I have the righteousness of faith as a pledge to be to me by my God. The same is true of the sacraments here that we observe. And they don't just pledge to you, friends, and this is important as well. They don't just pledge, and this is important, the benefits Christ gives you. They actually pledge Christ to you, that Christ is yours. And that's the beauty of these sacraments. They pledge that Christ himself is yours. What is the pledge of the Lord's Supper? This is my body and my blood. You have me. What about the pledge of baptism? For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Galatians 3, verse 27. This is where we find the union with Christ being portended in the sacraments is such a great aid to our faith. They confirm to you, friends, that your interest and your portion is in Jesus Christ himself. And you have a picture of that in the sacraments. Have you come to the supper and have you watched a baptism and thought, that signifies Christ is mine. That signifies that he is mine and I am his. That's what the sacraments, you can't see that, friends. But the sacraments are God's signs and seals that these things that the word testifies to are true. And so now that you understand what it means by them being signs and seals. I want you to consider the two parts of a sacrament, 
which are the outward sign and the inward grace. In that, we understand the sacraments to be true means of grace. The Lord is pleased to not only use them as signs, but also to give and convey grace to you by them. And what we say and confess is that the sign of the sacrament is outward, right? You see water or you see bread and wine, but the grace they convey is truly inward. You know, some people think of these sacraments and see them as nothing more than bare signs, and I think that's why the word ordinance is unhelpful, because it carries and conveys with it that kind of idea. They think the sacraments are rituals, or the ordinances are rituals only done because Christ said so. But they are more than that. They are true means of grace where God feeds you on Christ. In them, both, Christ's Spirit works in and by them on the souls who partake worthily, and he applies his saving benefits through them when you come to him by faith. When you come to the supper in faith, Christ is ministering to you in it by his Spirit. When you, like Father Abraham, present your child to be baptized Christ is ministering there. When you, if you have come to faith yourself, present yourself to be baptized, Christ is ministering to you there as well. And that they are a means of grace is explicit in our second scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of of the body of Christ. That word communion there signifies truly partaking of both blood and body. This is not just a bare sign, do this in remembrance of me, going no further than a memorial service. Oh, I am going to stir my affections for Christ. There's part of that is true, but this is actually Christ communicating to you his own body and blood. The Spirit feeding on him spiritually. And you must understand that because you see that those who do not, right, the warnings here in 1 Corinthians 11 is that those who take in an unworthy manner, not discerning the body and the blood of Christ and drinking and eating unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. If there was nothing happening, if there was nothing happening at that table, but merely observing a ritual, there would be no warning either. The warning proves as well as the blessing of 1 Corinthians 10 that something real is happening at the table, something spiritual, something more than just drinking a bit of wine and eating a bit of bread. We talked about this in the new members class, that in the supper, Christ is present not physically, but spiritually. And we saw that this has to do with the nature, right, of Christ's human nature. That Jesus Christ in his human nature cannot be present physically everywhere. He cannot be present physically bodily on the earth, actually, because where is his body now, boys and girls? In heaven. In heaven above, right? This is an issue for the Roman Catholic and Lutheran view of the sacrament. Acts 3, 20 to 21 and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. Jesus Christ bodily will be in heaven until he comes in power and glory. And the sacraments then, we partake of Christ through faith's union, through the Spirit of the Lord to Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of the Lord can and does communicate Christ's body and blood to your spirit. Christ in his divine nature is present here, feeding you on his body and blood spiritually. Also, and I'm dealing with this because some of you actually have pastoral questions on this. It's also very important for you to understand that it is not, it is not the minister who is important in all of this. This is very different from the Roman Catholic view. The minister is circumstantial in the observing of the sacrament. He is important, yes, because only he is authorized as a steward of God's mysteries to, uh, to administer them. But his faith, my faith and my piety, 
don't affect the unction of the sacraments. The reason this is a pastoral issue is some of you might have said, look, the man who baptized me, he left the faith. Is my baptism valid? Or he administered the sacrament to me for 20 years, and now he is an avowed atheist. Well, is any of that a valid means of grace? And the Bible says it is God who is in operation and in control of the table and the waters of baptism. It is not the minister. It is not the minister. So be assured, friends, if you have had a, a man ministering to you that God can use that man's ministry because the ministry is not about the man but about the God who is being ministered to. Well, that seems like that is an appropriate um, transition to our last heading, which is that these are the aids to our weak faith, and this will be a bit briefer than the other two. Now, speaking of the Roman Catholic view, which, by the way, does, does believe in a sense that the minister is necessary because he performs literally the hocus-pocus that is necessary to uh, transform the body, uh, the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ, which is we do not believe that the sacraments operate by themselves as if they are magic. Right? Um, that's the ex opere operata view in Latin, which is the working of the work. The outward sign of water and baptism is not water, which by itself, if I took some of that water which was used in a sacramental use, I cannot just toss it on you all, and then it would just work like magic washing away original sin. But that is actually the Roman Catholic view, which we must reject. They also say that the outward sign of bread and wine transubstantiate into Christ's own flesh and blood, which is why they are so, <laughs> they are, they're so paranoid that any bit of that wafer or that wine will spill. And you literally have probably watched nuns and others who when the, 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 the wafer falls or the wine is spilled, that they worship the elements on the floor and they fence it because they think that it has magically turned into the Lord's flesh and blood. And so they say, and that's idolatry, of course, right? And here you are worshiping the creature. But they say that to partake of the sign is to partake of the reality itself. But there are two examples in the scripture I want you to remember. Baptism was administered to Simon the sorcerer. You remember that. And the Lord's Supper was administered to the Corinthians to an ill and not blessed effect. They're not magic. They don't just work in themselves. The sacrament has no power in itself. Instead, only you who have an interest in Jesus Christ will receive benefit from them. And so it is faith that you must have in your observance and dependence on God in them. But in addition to requiring faith, this is what I I mentioned earlier there, sanctifying ordinances, they actually grow our faith as well. And what you have to see is that they are given to help us as the poor man cried, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. The sacraments are given to us as weak pilgrims on the way to help our unbelief. When you see them and you see Christ in them, you see your interest in him portrayed by them. The Spirit of the Lord will increase your faith and feed your hungry soul with Jesus Christ. That's why the sacraments, you'll notice, the reason I'm preaching this is to understand our practice, right? The sacraments are exhibited to you, right? They're not just sort of thrown your way, but they are exhibited in full sight of the whole congregation, but especially to you who will partake. That's why I raise the cup and the bread, And that's why baptism is done in full view of all. And it's not a hidden sacrament where we take a few people off to a remote shore and we do it there. But we actually want to exhibit it to all of God's people that you may perceive Christ in it and that your weak faith would see the washing away of my sin in it. They are a thing for your senses to behold that you may grow in faith, your sight primarily. Now, I want to be clear again. The word of God is the primary and greatest means of grace. And we must never elevate the sacraments above the word. And what the word does is, remember I used this definition earlier, that the sacraments, the signs must be sensible, right? Where did they get their sense? From out of the word of God, right? It's the word that teaches us what these sacraments are. They create a linkage in your mind between water and forgiveness, between wine and blood that will purge our conscience from dead works. Without the word, friends, 
The sacraments are absolutely nothing. And that is why we preach the word before we observe the sacraments. But the Lord, in knowing the weakness of our faith, has given you these sensible signs that you might see the promises of God, the promises of the word of God in a visible form. And then having our faith increased by them and giving us grace, the sacraments, they also require a response from you. They are, at least the table is, but also baptism will see this in a way, they renew our covenant to be the Lord's. And we are to respond to the gracious covenant he has given us. For in the sacrament, he reminds you, thou art my people. And what was the response we saw long ago in Hosea 2.23? We are to say, thou art my God. And you are to respond to the grace of God that says, yes, Jesus Christ is yours. And what is the soul who has received Christ supposed to say? We say, I am his And I pledge myself to his service and renew our service to him. That's why, if you think about it, you know, things we don't do are arbitrary. Why we have a Thanksgiving service after the celebration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Because we say to the Lord, we are renewing our covenant with you, Lord. And we want to respond to you. Think of Psalm 116, which asks in verse 12 to 14, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord, and then I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. You take the cup of salvation, and then you say to the Lord, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits unto me? I will pay my vows to the Lord to be his. But never, ever reverse the order. You first take the cup of salvation and call upon the Lord. Then afterward, you render service unto the Lord out of thanks for all his benefits. We have been a little negligent in this, I think, but this is why Reformed churches often have a collection for almsgiving after observing the Lord's Supper. Uh, To give to works of mercy from a thankful heart, remembering that Jesus Christ, the true good Samaritan, did not pass me by, and neither should I pass by others. And in the same way as the Lord's Supper, when you see a baptism, you're called to improve or prove your own. That's the language the Reformed Churches uses. For instance, when you see a baptism, and you witness the picture there of the washing away of your sins, when you see the covenant sign administered to another soul, you remember the covenant Christ made with you to be your God and your own vow to him in your baptism to live in newness of life. Think about this in Romans 6, 3, and 4. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Now listen, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You see the linkage. When you see a baptism, you say, yes, I need to walk in newness of life. That's my calling as one who is baptized. I need to walk as one who walks in newness of life. And so as we come to the conclusion here, friends, often what I want to exhort you is that we do not get the benefits of the sacraments because we are so shallow in our faith. It's true. We're shallow in understanding. We're shallow in our practice. But if our faith would look to such things, and these are really simple things. I understand that some of this may have been um, a bit long, but these are really simple things. And how blessed we would have uh, in our soul, how blessed our souls would be with a true communion with Jesus Christ and how our weak faith would be so strengthened by these sacraments, not seeing them as superstitious, but true means of grace when we apprehend our union with Jesus Christ in them, that Christ is mine, I have an interest in him, and he says I must live as one of his, and how our weak faith would be so strengthened. You would see the word of God, right? And we would say, yes, I see that I have righteousness, but when I look at the table and I look at the waters of baptism, I see righteousness. And I see I have it, that the promise of the word is sealed by God saying, this is my pledge and my promise. You will have this. 
and you would walk in newness of life, friends. Well, I believe this will set us up for investigating the two sacraments in more detail in future sermons. But with this foundation laid, I pray the Lord has opened your hearts to see the sacraments afresh, that you might gain a use out of them. Praise God that he is so accommodating to our weaknesses, friends. Praise God that he has given us pictures to see the gospel. And that even the youngest child here can understand what they signify. So as we think of the last two Lord's Days, I suppose the call for all of us is to improve our baptism, to walk in newness of life, and also to remember as we partook of the Lord's table this past Lord's Day that we are to pay our vows before the Lord and we are to render unto him the service he is due. Well, may God continue to bless what he has done for you in the sacraments as you meditate upon Christ. Until then, let us arise and go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, our God, we are such such weak creatures, Lord. We are weak in our constitution. We are also weak, O Lord, in our understanding. And yet, Father, you do not deride us for that fact. And instead, you condescend to us. You condescend to us by way of covenant. You condescend to us in the word of God. You condescend to us in these great sacraments. O Lord, you know the weakness of our faith. How even in our salvation, Lord, we often doubt. So we bless you and praise you that these are signs and, yes, seals of the covenant of grace that seal the promises of God to us, your people, to take our thoughts heavenward towards you. So we pray, Father, that you would bless what they signify inwardly, that the outward sign would be a true, uh, truly marked inwardly by grace. Even this past Lord's Day with the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would continue to bless it to us and that we wouldn't forget it, Father, but instead we would remember it each and every day until the next time we partake. And with the baptism of Enoch, Father, may you bless that to bless his family even now. But I pray, Father, that you would bless all of us with a call to improve our baptism, that we would walk in newness of life as we have seen ourselves united to Christ and risen again spiritually from the dead. As always, Father, and evermore, may you do these things to your praise and your glory for the sake of our mediator and for the sake of his covenant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.